Hi, I'm Paige Smith with Below the Radar, and you're listening to The Power of Disability with your host, community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Alet Mansky. This is a six-part series of the Below the Radar podcast. The Power of Disability features interviews with special guests, centering the contributions of people with disabilities. Before we get to episode one with Victoria Maxwell, we have a short excerpt from last week's conversation between Am Johal and series host Alet Mansky, in which Al shares the origins of this work and a bit about what you can expect from the Power of Disability series. I hope you enjoy. Hi there, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us once again. We are lucky to have Al Mansky uh, with us today. Uh, he's going to be guest hosting a special series with us. Welcome, Al. Hey, Am. Nice to be with you. As they say in broadcast land, I'm a longtime listener of Below the Radar. <laughs> <laughs> now, Al, you're going to be a guest hosting a, a special series on Below the, the Radar. We're really lucky to have you um, uh, hosting uh, on the power of disability. I'm wondering if you can set up this series for us and, and who you're going to be talking to. Well, thanks uh, for the opportunity, Am. I really appreciate the platform that you and Below the Radar and your colleagues and SFU is offering. So, 40 plus years in the disability world, and I had to unlearn a whole lot of things that, that I thought I knew about disability. First of all, that it could be fixed. Or second, secondly, that it required uh, a charitable impulse from society on behalf of people with disabilities to the point where I arrived, where, where I recognized that and realized that, you know, people with disabilities are creators of the world that we live in. And that if we had uh, ignored their contributions, we would not recognize the world we're in. The big difference is that most of those contributions are not acknowledged or that the contribution of the individual is acknowledged, but not their disability. So in a sense, disability is written out of history in two different ways. So I wrote a book called The Power of Disability and you know, there's 100 plus stories in there and it's packaged as 10 lessons for surviving, thriving and changing the world. But it doesn't do justice, you know, to what I had researched. There's hundreds and hundreds of phenomenal stories. So the podcast profiles six, you know, of the more interesting people locally and uh, internationally that I ran across in my research. And the point is, is to have the listener uh, appreciate people with disabilities as authoritative sources on justice, on political campaigning, on democracy, on citizen action, on art, on love, on sexuality, on social change, on astronomy, just about every aspect of all aspects of human endeavor. So generally that's the point of the power of disability as a framing uh, and the point of the podcast. Disease, disorder, what can it be? There's no need for sympathy. Disease, disorder, epilepsy. There is nothing wrong with me. Hello. I'm Al Edmansky, and this is the Power of Disability podcast, highlighting what history has overlooked, the contributions of people with disabilities. Today's Power of Disability guest is Sunshine Coast's Victoria Maxwell. 
Hello. Victoria. Hello, Victoria. Nice to see you. Nice really to see you too. looking forward to this conversation. Me too. You are an actor, a storyteller, a keynote speaker. I should add, funny keynote speaker. <laughs> Thank you. You're also a wellness warrior. Uh, your specialty is an insider's experience of mental illness. And that's not all. Uh, you're a writer, a blogger for Psychology Today. I think 12 years now, is it? Or somewhere in that neighborhood? Yeah, yeah about 12 years. 12 years, regular columns. Yeah. You've also received many, many awards. I won't, I won't go into them all, but uh, I like this one, the National Difference Maker Award. I know. That's a good one. <laughs> It is. It is. <laughs> That's good. We need a lot more of those. Uh, I know it's true, uh, huh? Right now, top ten entrepreneurs with disabilities. I was not even aware that that was uh, an award. I'm glad it's yeah. there. We need more of those too. Yeah, we do. The Mental Health Commission of Canada also named your keynote "That's Just Crazy Talk" as one of the top anti-stigma interventions in the country. And I want to get into that conversation um, later on. But first of all, welcome. I'm so glad that you're on this podcast. And um, I'm just happy to be talking to you. Thank you. Let me start by saying, how's your pandemic going? Love that question now. Instead of people are saying, how are you? It's like, how's your (laughs) pandemic going? How's it treating you? Uh, I feel really fortunate. It's, uh, it took a while to sort of, I guess the word is pivot, and also uh, supplement my mental health. I took a bit of a slide for a couple of months in the beginning, uh, but I feel like I've found my sea legs. And um, one thing that it's brought is it's really um, asked me to find other ways to offer my services. So not just virtual conferences, but other services that I um, didn't really know that I would be able to offer. So that's been been really good. And it's really um, given sort of new life to my career. What's an example of of, uh, some additional services or supports that you've moved into? Uh, Well, there's uh, uh, quite a few. It's quite surprising. Um, Some is that I'm starting to do... uh, storytelling instruction again. So I've done some workshops, but now I'm um, actually creating uh, a training program so people can start to learn how to tell either their mental health story or just any particular important story to them, which I think is important in terms of the disability community because we don't we don't hear people's disability stories very often. I mean, I think in some ways we hear more people's stories about mental illness, which is a psychiatric disability, but we don't often hear a lot of, you know, other kinds of uh, stories like Crohn's disease or chronic fatigue, or, you know, it may be anecdotal here and there. So I think it's really important to have a platform for that and to be able to empower people to do it with elements that really make it effective. Um, and then I'm starting to do uh, peer uh, support work with uh, mental health coaching, which I'm really excited about. I took a four month training and uh, I was doing it before, but I really wanted to get uh, some good sort of good education behind it to validate what I know or new skills and things. So um, and peer support um, for listeners who don't know is really when someone who has a similar experience um, is helping someone else uh, along their journey. And probably help isn't the right word. It's more support. And then mental health coaching is a little bit more directive where it's um, helping people reach goals and, and things like that. 
Well, I'm interested in, in where this where this began. And um, you know, I've described some, only some of your achievements and your the awards services that you offer, but how would you how would you describe yourself as a person, as a human being? Who is who is <laughs> Victoria Maxwell? I was going to say in a nutshell, and then I was going to say, okay, maybe that's a bad choice of words. <laughs> um, but that's probably part of it is I feel uh, like um, a, a humorist, someone who likes to make people laugh, but not just for the sake of laughing for a, a way of having people reflect, which I think a lot of, I don't do stand-up comedy, but the kind of comedy I do, I think ideally makes people think, and I use a lot of irreverent humor. And I would say I have a, a a really strong empathy for a lot of people's struggles, for a lot of people who are the underdog or people who are in very vulnerable populations or positions. And I come from a very privileged position. I'm a middle-aged, university-educated white woman in Canada. So I have not faced the other barriers that a lot of people do. And uh, even though I have a, a disability and I've gone through trauma, I had a lot more resources open to me. So I, I'm i aware of that and I do my best not to uh, take it for granted and also not uh, appropriate other people's experiences or speak for them, but ideally give them a platform to speak from. And uh, how else would I? Quirky, quirky and feisty. <laughs> Okay. Um, as an example of irreverent humor, uh, was that your uh, mention of maybe you shouldn't have used in a nutshell? Uh, yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, it's just, just sort of like that. Like I yeah. used to do this presentation with a, a nurse practitioner uh, around mental health and I used to start it and I used to joke saying, so we're doing a, a nuts and bolts version of mental health 101 and she's the bolts and I'm the nut. And, you know, and some people, I mean, and I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and psychosis and anxiety a long, long time ago. And there's, this is not meant to uh, diminish or undermine people's struggles, of course. And if you had asked me to joke about it when I was first diagnosed, I would have probably slapped you in the face, um, as my parents would have as well. So, you know, they say in in comedy, timing is everything, and, and it's true. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, it, it, I think it's still um, sometimes not, you know, I, I know that I can still offend people, even though I'm talking about myself and I'm laughing or making jokes about the cultural uh, lens that we have on it, the inadequate kinds of things that we have, services and, and experiences that I have and other people have, partially because when people laugh, their guard is down. And then it's like, it's like being able to feed somebody, right? So you make them laugh and then you stick the medicine in and then they don't you go, Oh crap, I swallowed it. And then they, then, then they sort of have to digest it in some way. And so to me, that laughter can sometimes be through irreverent humor uh, because it, it reflects things in a very different way. Sort of like how the jester you know, did it in, uh, in old time court, right? Where they point out the emperor who doesn't have clothes or they say things that can't be said. Um, and that's the role. You mentioned timing is everything in, uh, in uh, humor or comedy. Timing 
I think is everything in dance as well. Um, uh, I know that because I don't have that timing. But um, what I sleuth out about you is in your your history that you actually danced with John Travolta. Ah, oh my God, you've is done that, your research. Is that right? Yes. Okay, so what was the song oh that you danced God. to? Oh so. God, well, it wasn't really, um, it was... In a, this is the thing and people don't even believe it because the whole scene was cut out of the movie. It was a movie from ages and ages ago. Look who's talking to. But ironically, I still get royalty checks and I probably made more in royalties than I did in the one day on the set, which is ridiculous. Um, and so it this at the time when we were filming, there actually was no song. We just were choreographed and they were going to put the song on top of the, you know, the soundtrack on top of the, the film. And it was it was quite a bad sort of written scene. It was Kirstie Alley's character's nightmare of John Travolta's fantasy. So it was this really strange thing. So Kirstie Alley was having a nightmare that her boyfriend or husband uh, was having sort of all these women fawning on him. And it was based on, I can't remember if it was Zeffirelli's, one of his movies. And so they had all the archetypes and I happened to be the the healer archetype, but I was dressed as a 1960s nurse, almost like a Benny Hill nurse for those of you who are old enough to know who Benny Hill is. Uh, anyway, and so we just, I danced with him for about, you know, I don't know, three minutes or something. And I was so intimidated. I couldn't believe this is what I had to do. Um, yeah, so... Well, I'd like to do a whole series with you on the actors you've known. I know you've also encountered Johnny Depp, et cetera. So yeah. Um, yeah. very another... small parts like that. Like I'm the yeah. sort of like the, the little peewee person with a bigger name. So we're yeah. very short sort of, you know, moments and stuff. Yeah. So Victoria, um, from the ridiculous or playful to the more of the sublime, uh, what would you describe is the biggest challenge that we as a society are facing right now. What would your uh, take be on that? In terms of um, mental health specifically or disability and specifically? Or societally, um, just what, what wow. you... Oh, I think probably uh, uh, a lack of willingness to see each other's side, you know, uh, ex extremism. And, and I mean that also, I mean, we've seen it in the political arena, but I also, I think most people think of, you know, why can't the far right understand the far left? But I also think it's about those of us who are in the middle trying to understand people's uh, extreme views, because there's always a reason for people's behavior. And it's usually to keep themselves feeling safe. Uh, and I think the more that we can do that, and it doesn't mean that we have to agree with it. it, just because I can acknowledge it or validate it, validating doesn't mean agreement. It just means being able to go, oh, okay, I see where you're coming from. Um, and I think that has a, when I think of it, the first thing that came into my head was the opiate crisis mm -hmm. that we've got in Canada. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just thinking this morning that we have Mental Health Awareness Month, we have Mental Illness Awareness Month, we have Black History Month. I don't know if we have Drug Awareness or Addiction Awareness Month. And it has probably, maybe besides psychosis and schizophrenia, uh, probably the heaviest stigma around. Mm -hmm. And um, 
and this, I read this really great article by, uh, I think it's Philip Melku. I can't remember his name, but it was a Globe and Mail from two years ago. And uh, he interviewed a woman who had uh, a mental illness and she was a health professional, but she wanted to remain anonymous. And she said that, you know, she'd talk at these events and she said she stopped doing it because she sort of felt like she wasn't the voice that needed to be heard or seen. And, uh, she said that, you know, she can, she puts herself together. She's white, middle class. Um, but a lot of the people who are not being served properly mm-hmm. wouldn't even be allowed into those events. Mm-hmm. And I'm conflicted to some degree. Like I feel at times I go like, not that I'm necessarily a token mentally ill person, but I'm, uh, I sort of am the comfortable Person And I guess I've reconciled that with myself by saying, okay, uh, if there can be any door open for people, right, that allows them to start talking about what they don't want to talk about, I'll, that's okay, I'll do that. I'll be part of the, the medium will be the message. But what we really need to also address is the serious mental illness mm-hmm. that exists and not ignore that people, it's on a continuum recoveries on a continuum and there are some people who have such chronic mental illness that they need the supports and it's getting whitewashed by all this mental health issues or mental health awareness and I think that's very important but we need to talk about that people who have schizophrenia or bipolar disorder that's really treatment resistant or severe sometimes they aren't able to live on their own sometimes they aren't able to work um and it's not in order to uh, exacerbate stigma, but it's to give a, a more realistic picture so that we understand the urgency of services that we need and where the research money can go and where funding can go. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I, I often get concerned that um, anti-stigma programs are good, but we actually need programs that meet people where they are and who need them. And I think we're, I think we're failing a lot of people. I think we're failing a lot of people. Uh, this, you I mean, this really gets at the, uh, the area of systemic change. Um, yeah. And as you've described that there is this tension between identity and solidarity. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't have to be a contradiction. It doesn't have to be polarized. It can be reconciled. Um, and in many ways, we're all learning how best to do that. Yeah. And to keep our eye on on what's important that really that needs to be changed, uh, even in the short term. Uh, I think you tweeted out just a couple of days ago, I'm just going to read it here, Victoria, that antidepressant prescriptions for new people have increased by 20% this year. Yeah. Yeah. And that um, notwithstanding that, that psychiatric medication is not enough. We are in a, you said, hashtag mental health, hashtag crisis. Can you, I mean, you've begun to describe it, but can you describe what you're seeing or hearing or sensing about this crisis? Yeah, I, um, I mean, I, I would imagine every one of your listeners is experiencing some sort of uncertainty and increased anxiety. Um, but it's all a different degrees of it. Um, and I think, if there is any kind of uh, positive that can come out of this is that people who may not have had even thought about their mental health 
or anxiety or depression are now experiencing maybe what it's like for some of us who have lived with it in debilitating ways. Um, mm. And because it's coming so much more to the forefront. But the crisis, I think, what's apparent to me is that our almost only line of defense that's accessible to people, um, most people, is uh, prescriptions. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's sometimes not even available to pe some people. But if it is, that's often all they get. And studies and research have shown more uh, over and over that the combination of some kind of counseling and some kind of um, prescriptions, if it's necessary, medication, because it's sometimes not, um, gives the best outcome. But, and it's not just short-term therapy where you get five sessions if you have you know, extended benefits with your work. And sometimes people aren't working, so they don't have any benefits. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I, I've been an advocate for this, and I don't think it'll, I don't know if it'll happen in my lifetime, but in, ter in terms of universal health care, um, the ideal of universal mental health care mm -hmm. so that counselors can be available um, on an ongoing basis, just like your GP would. Mm -hmm. This this idea of universal mental health care is an elegant description of the direction we should be going in. And, um, and I'm, you know, when I'm paying attention to some of the international conversations, they're saying, people are saying uh, that depression is the number one source of disability in the world now, and that it, there has not been a major investment no, no uh, it's, it's in decades. The ratio, no, the comparison of how much uh, money goes towards cancer research versus depression, it's it's mm -hmm. just inadequate. Absolutely. So maybe this is a blessing of COVID, uh, or what I like to say, the Corona mindset is that it's mm -hmm. now apparent, it's clear, yeah. and um, and the mindset that will get us out of this pandemic is probably a mindset that can help us, um, you know, address this issue of securing a universal mental health care. And you, your statement, you, you made a statement that on the surface, it just seemed to me, well, oh, I, I mean, I had to read it three or four times and I realized how profound it is. It's one of those statements that's simple, but profound. And you said, recovery shouldn't be a possibility. It should be an expectation. Hmm. And even to have, you know, that's the driver, that's the motivation in it. And um, I don't know how long you had to work to come up with that. But to me, that's a really elegant framing of, you know, of the moonshot of putting somebody on the moon or whatever it is. Right. It's, um, um, do, do you want to speak a little bit more about that? Um, yeah, it's determination behind that. Uh, yeah, that's I the love. feistiness, right? Yeah, and, I guess, and, yeah. and I also want to preface it that recovery is relative, depending whatever your recovery is means to you. And to me, it's about the quality of life. So, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, living in a group home, living independently, working full-time employment, not working at all, as long as there's a sort of a sense of meaning and um, sense of self-efficacy to some degree um, and connection is what I mean by recovery. And I guess like it, I, this is where I see that I was so fortunate that I, the, a psychiatrist that I worked with that really helped me, there was no question about recovery. It, it, like I kept, so when I started speaking about my story, uh, I sort of was a bit surprised and went, I don't understand. Like, 
don't doctors expect people to get well? And I realized that not with mental health. Like it's, mm. it's, it's slowly changed now, mm-hmm. but most people got the message that's saying, you know, you've got a severe chronic illness. You're not going to be able to work. You won't be able to, you know, have a lot of difficulties stress-wise in your life. You're going to have to be very careful. Um, you know, it, you're not going to be able to do certain things. Um, as opposed to looking at the strengths and saying, okay, so this is some of the stuff that you're going to deal with, but let's leverage all your strengths. And um, I think that's where it comes from, where instead of it just being this sort of vague possibility that maybe it gets mentioned, that that's the, the, the goal. And, and you can even clarify, like, what does recovery mean? So uh, the person that's in treatment has a say and say, not just doesn't have a say, but directs it and is self-determined mm-hmm. around saying, I'll say, what would you, how would you like your life to be? What would you mm-hmm. like? And how can I support you best? Um, mm-hmm. So it's driven. And I think that comes back to the comments that we were talking about or the, what we were talking about in terms of the systemic change is that it's nothing for us without us. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times the people who were asking are not the people who uh, need the service. So it's one thing to maybe include me, but we've got people that are on the downtown east side um, living in an SRO. Um, you know, there's a reason why camps keep popping up even when there's SROs available because there's a different culture. And it's not that I don't, you know, it's, it's not about not keeping people safe, but it's about saying, finding out what works. I listened to something on CBC today, and it was this this really great interview with a woman that had dealt with uh, heroin and meth uh, addiction. And um, she's lived in this SRO for 10 years. And she says, um, that's where she she fits in, right? She belongs. She, she, she has a roommate, she knows. And, and so the supports like, and the interviewer asked, well, what would you, what would help, you know, what would you want? And she said, I'd like a dog. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that makes people have meaning in their life. Mm-hmm. It's not the fact that we think that they should, you know, have a different kind of housing situation. And so it, it I could go on about that. Um, I, I get really passionate about making sure people have a voice to say what's what's important for them, mm-hmm. especially with mental health and addictions, because there's also the side of involuntary commitment. Mm-hmm. And I was involuntarily committed twice, and it saved my life. And I know mm-hmm. many other people had horrible experiences with that. And I, understandably, where you are not uh, treated well, where it's extremely traumatizing. Um, people are separated from their children. So anyway, um, so there is a, a, diff- a, a different uh, tone with mental illness because you, at times when I was in psychosis, I was not making decisions that were healthy for me. I was putting myself in danger. And I, uh, I could reconcile afterwards that I needed to have a different kind of guidance in order to be safe. I know you're you're doing um, creativity training as well as one of these new supports or services that you can offer. And I'm I think my wife and I were in the audience the first time you performed um, as the bipolar princess. Oh right, that part of your story. This goes way way back. Yes. I think to the first kickstart. And, oh wow. um, yes, yes. And the response was overwhelming. I mean, you had the audience in the palm of your hand, <laughs> laughing, uh, loving, 
and and learning, learning along with you. Um, and so, I mean, you've become quite proficient at uh, engaging in culture uh, and engaging in the story that's out there right. uh, and shifting it, yeah. Uh, yeah. flipping Thank it. You. Thanks. And so we have a lot to learn from you. Um, and so I wonder, do you, do you want to talk about that a little bit? And I mean, the story about how you got to become the bipolar princess and whatever. I mean, there's a long story attached to that. I don't know if you want to share any of that. And um, uh, it involves you running down the street without any clothes yes, at one point. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. But, um, maybe you could just give a, a little taste of, you know, of this discovery you've made uh, and the intentionality you bring to storytelling. Right. Um, and are you talking more about sort of my my sort of journey of diagnosis to getting into telling my story? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to give a Cole's Notes version. So um, there was a long history of mental illness in my family, and uh, I dealt with different kinds of things that were never really acknowledged or not necessarily acknowledged, but identified very early. And um, eventually, uh, I had a building crisis from the time I was starting to go into university, which is often very common for people when they're um, beginning to have signs of mental health issues, sort of late teens, early 20s. And I was dealing with anxiety and an eating disorder, depression, um, but it wasn't completely disabling me. And so anyway, so I uh, at Eventually, my depressions, when I graduated, were getting worse and worse. And uh, because of the genetic vulnerability I had, because of circumstantial stuff where, as an actor, finances were unstable, things like that, weird working hours, and uh, also trauma that in my past, it all came into a perfect storm. And, and I guess the part that I, ha- I don't talk about frequently, but I realize a lot of people do relate, is I was so, because of the nature of depression, it was, uh, I had lost a sense of meaning for life. And I was often very suicidal. And so I sought out meditation. This was probably 20 years ago. Um to find literally to find enlightenment because I thought if you know somehow enlightenment means I disappeared but I still stayed on the earth I my pain would disappear and so I went to a meditation retreat but I was not prepared for the intensity of it and I have a tendency just temperamentally that when there's a lot of stress I disassociate and if the if trauma comes up really, really fast, or also just the intensity of meditation, I can go into psychosis. And so within that meditation um, time, I went into what could be called psychosis, but at the same time, I had some really profound spiritual um, experiences. So any of the people listening, if they know Kundalini Yoga, I had a Kundalini crisis, you know, energy going through my body, seeing things, but I was very blissful. Uh, It wasn't sort of the um, frightening visions that some people have in in hallucinations. So anyway, so fast forward, uh, it took, because of that, I wouldn't accept that I had a mental illness. I felt that it was a spiritual crisis. And it wasn't until I met a a psychiatrist and a nurse who really listened to me and could allow me to hold this sort of paradox that you can have a mental illness as well as a a spiritual crisis. And uh, so that's when I finally sort of accepted help. 
And that really was a five-year period. I was in and out of hospitals. And with that, I was running down the street naked, looking for God and a psychosis. And um, that was the second to last one. That wasn't even the one that actually gave me the wake-up call. Um, and so when I finally got stable, um, I was able to go back to work. I didn't go back to work as an actor, went in as a receptionist for some stability, but I still really needed something creative. And so at the time I hadn't heard many stories. It was only celebrity books that I had read or the really tragic um, sort of faces in the newspaper. So I started writing and I went to the Kickstart festival and, um, uh, had half of my show done and just did a reading of it. And the response was surprise for me, very overwhelming. It was uh, like, I had two invitations to go to like the, uh, another province and to England and all this stuff. And I was just stunned. Um, and I just realized how much people wanted to hear what it was like and so this was way before anybody was talking about it um and so I started to write more and I wrote my first show uh crazy for life and then I wrote another one about getting back to work and then I wrote another one about um dating and then I wrote another one about family and secrets and stigma and uh started presenting and touring them at communities and conferences and did sort of across North America and, and uh, did some international ones, not a, not a lot. Um, and it was both incredibly uh, exhilarating, but also very liberating for me because it was like I was sharing this secret that I had been ashamed of that a lot of people are ashamed of. Uh, and it just lightens people's load so much. And I think what it does is it gives people some hope that, okay, we're not alone. We've, we, we've, we can, we can get through this together. Thank you. It's a great story. And, um, I encourage the listeners to follow up with you on these performances and more of your writing. Thanks. Um, I wanted to get at you, you and your husband, uh, Gord have been together now for 20 years and, uh, your most recent Psychology Today post is, oh, I love this, is there love after the psych board? Yeah. And then you proceeded to give some tips for mental illness and marriage that seem to make sense to me generally. Yeah. Um, and, um, and I, you know, your tips involved a number of things, but as you describe it, uh, Gord met you first. Yeah. Not the illness. Um, yeah. This question of relationships um, is, and when uh, one partner may be a caregiver or is in danger of becoming a yeah. caregiver and, and preserving, uh, you know, if I can put it this way, the sanctity of the relationship yeah. in the context of potential caregiving, whatever, it seems to me is, is really important to understand. So, uh, I mean, I guess the short question is, is there love after the psych ward? But we know there is, um, uh, but maybe you have some comments on that, but also could you talk a little bit about this question of potential enmeshment that yeah. is not as positive as it could be? Yeah, um, I the best of relationships can, you know, be codependent anyway, um, without knowing it. And even with the best of intentions, but when there's an illness uh, or a condition, I think it uh, it can be even more 
difficult to, like you said, make sure that you protect the sanctity of the relationship so that uh, uh, Gordon and I are husband and wife first, not caregiver and patient or caregiver and um, person that's needing support. But at the, but how do you do that when I was really, really ill? Like when I went into a psychosis, I needed Gord to be there um, for me. And um, I think one of the ways is what he does very well is lets me know when, you know, he has reached his capacity and where he knows that I need to be leaning on other people more. Um, and that also means having in place prior to a crisis, um, a really uh, wide support network that includes both health professionals and social connections. So my social network is big enough. It's sort of like when you're on a trapeze and the, and the, the net is huge, right? So that no matter where you fall, you're going to be caught. And not one person has to catch you. It's not like where you're, you know, diving off the high, high tower and you're trying to get into this little tiny barrel um, because there's a lot more risk with that, right? And so, uh, although I would say being on a trapeze, I'd be really scared too. <laughs> um, and so I make sure that I have, you know, I have two friends who I can really, really talk to well, probably three friends where I can have very meaningful conversations that can give me a lot of good support. Um, I have a psychiatrist. I have my um, counselor at the mental health team. Um, I have my GP. I have um, online resources that I go to. I have my work, which is one of my support things. And so Gordon and I did get into um, a pattern where we were sort of becoming each other's therapist almost. And I think this can happen in anybody's relationship, but it's easier to slip into when there is a chronic condition. And so we've sort of had to um, step back and recreate the container and understanding. So where is it that that becomes problematic? And we're both pretty aware of it now. Um, and it's sometimes uncomfortable to unpack and untangle, but the fruits of it, are are really wonderful. So any of the discomfort or awkward growing pains really makes it worth it. Yeah. In my current book, the the power of disability, I'm I'm honored that you allowed me to profile you in there. It has a hundred profiles of powerful disabled people around the world, past and present. Um, and you also allowed me to excerpt um, rules for making fun of mental illness and. Um, <laughs> I just wondered if we could end this podcast with you offering uh, the listeners, uh, let's put it this way, the top number one rule. Um, uh, can you remember them? Yeah, I think I can. You can, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of a one that goes almost for any kind of humor or comedy. Mm. That if you have a mental illness and you want to make fun uh, and use humor, you allowed to. If you don't have mental illness, it's totally off the table. It's just like if you're Italian, you can make jokes about being Italian. If you're not Italian, you're never going to make jokes about that. Um, and so to me, that is uh, probably the number one. And probably the other one is like, it's I'm not laughing at people. I'm making uh, 
jokes about the situations I have gotten into. Did I get did I get number one or two right? Uh, seems like a good place to uh, start and uh, a great place to end this uh, conversation, uh, Victoria. Thank you so 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 much. For, oh, you're welcome. It, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. It's so thoughtful. Uh, it's been wonderful. And uh, just for for the listeners, uh, we will have more information on Victoria's website uh, on the uh, below the radar uh, website, and you can get details of your services, the support, the old ones, the new ones. You can sign up for yeah. your regular bulletin. You can yeah. book us, book her for your next conference, Zoom yeah. or not. And if um, you'd like to see the show, I have downloads available for really reasonable. And if people aren't able to afford them, just tell them to contact me and we can work something out. So, yeah. Beautiful. So, beautiful. Yeah. Thank you. And for the listeners, uh, if you want to read more about the power of disability, check out Check out my website, also on the Below the Radar uh, website, and uh, check out my latest book. Um, I think you will understand what I mean by this subtitle after listening to Victoria Maxwell today, The Power of Disability, 10 Lessons for Surviving, Thriving, and uh, Changing the World. Thanks again, Victoria. Thank you. This has been part one of The Power of Disability, a special six-part series of the Below the Radar podcast. Check back next Thursday for the next installment. This series is curated and hosted by community organizer, social entrepreneur, and author, Al Etmansky. The theme music for The Power of Disability is There Is Nothing Wrong With Me, Epilepsy by Todd Oseki. The production of this series is supported by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. We'll see you next time.